Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. Find out what's kind of your pattern what things really matter to you and why why does that happen, right? What, there's, there's an endless amount of political topics we could talk about from the ancient times all the way to what happened literally yesterday. Do we like Biden's speech or not? What I'm trying to find out is how people run that algorithm that they get involved, excited, so to speak, with one particular issue. And then it seems to be gone two months later or six months later or maybe never, right? So, but But what is that topic that really excites them in that moment and how do you think that's something that you is a conscious decision you made or it's someone else's decision that put this in your brain so to speak and you just didn't realize it like social media right or maybe your friends or maybe your church or maybe it's some crazy liberals i mean which i fully agree with they're crazy right i think yeah they're crazy um, yeah but where where does this actually come from why do we get excited about things and then we forget about them? I think it comes out of identity, whether you have a well-formed identity or not, like whether you have been thoughtful and intentional about cultivating specific character traits and values. And if you have, if you have done that work and it's work, it's hard work and you've, you have been skeptical, you've been through a period of, of extreme skepticism where you've rejected a lot of the things that you initially were raised to believe and then subjected them to radical doubt and then perhaps readopted them uh, freshly for yourself. Uh, you didn't just accept them and hold them continuously from the time of your youth on, but you rejected them and then them. I think that, that period of, of radical skeptical rejection is a period that the the most enlightened minds always go through. Um, it's kind of a hellscape of the soul that you have to trudge across to burn away all the all the stuff that um, doesn't necessarily hold up to logical scrutiny. You know, like we we are raised with a lot of superstition and fairy tales and stuff like that from our childhood. And while it's good to cultivate imagination. Um, just buying into that whole hog unquestioningly is not the hallmark of a, of a rational mind. 
I really like what you just said. What, what I feel is, is still perplexing to me is there is this enormous amount of, of potential topics we can choose from, right? And I don't think, and this is a list of thousands and thousands of, of, of topics that are important. This is how we develop the economy. How do we, how do we create fairness in the society? How do we run our justice system? So it, it's probably endless amounts of topics, right? But if you look at the daily chatterbox, so to speak, of, of Twitter and Facebook, there's a relatively limited amount of topics that actually seem to gain traction and, and create an emotional connection with people. And this is what the AI algorithms, what, what social media is really accentuating, is what the AI fields it can promote to the next user and get some engagement from. And I think, me included, we are not really aware that most of these topics are actually presented to us because they created an emotional reaction with other people. And that's why the algorithm thinks we will also emotionally react to this. And we also, I, I have trouble remembering what I saw on Twitter a couple of days ago. I might still, if I, if I know the account, I might remember the account and there was something interesting, but that's about it. So what, what I'm trying to get at is we, we look at all these political issues and we feel very strongly in that moment and maybe even a couple of weeks later, right? But there's so many more interesting topics that in my mind would frame the, the future of this country or, or the world and are much more impactful. And nobody really cares about them, but you, you can talk about them on Twitter, but you get like two likes and it doesn't matter who tweets them, right? It can be a very popular account. What we, we argue about these little things, you could obviously infer more important things from these little things, but it seems almost like there is someone consciously misdirecting us. Yeah, that's what I I'm trying to that. get. Yeah, I think and the social this... media algorithms are definitely designed to, to stir up hype first and foremost, because that's what draws attention and what draws attention draws ad revenue. So we, ha we have to understand that these are, these are advertising companies that Facebook is an advertising company. Twitter is an advertising company. And if you're not buying it and you're not selling it, then you're the product being sold. That's what people don't, they, they don't realize, they don't see. That if you're not buying it and you're not selling it, you are the product being sold. Data or advertising impressions are the product. And so whatever pulls data out of you, whatever pulls engagement out of you, any kind of data points that they can get, no matter what they are, then that's something that they want to get out of you. So they will provoke you as often as possible to do that. And then um, whatever uh, will draw you in to engage with the content and the platform and keep you there longer, trap you there longer so that you they can put as many ads in front of your face, they'll do that too. That's a horrible formula. That's like a, a toxic narcissistic friend that constantly talks about themselves and everything they're interested in and doesn't really listen to you. And then when you do speak, they're only listening for something that they can use to hook you and, and redirect you to somebody else and something else that they have an ulterior motive and, and some kind of agenda to push. And if, if Facebook was a friend, like if Facebook was a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, if Facebook was your spouse, would you divorce them for a way? Would you not speak to, would you like ghost that friend for treating you that way? Of course you would. 
if Facebook was a person in your life, a human in your life, and they acted the way Facebook acts towards their users, you would hate that person. And yet we trust Facebook with our logins, our accounts, our data, our family pictures. And I'm as guilty as everybody. You know, I'm on there because my grandmother's on there, you know, and I want to make sure that she can see, you know, the family pictures and, you know, what's going on. It's her windows to the world. Um, same thing with just about every social media company. We use them because they're convenient ways to talk to other people, but they insert themselves in an intrusive way in those relationships. And then they make themselves inextricable and they do it all for these very devious motives. Um, I kind of want to go back if I can for just a second to the point that you asked me about before, like why people are kind of the way that they are. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of a quote by Confucius. He said, at 15, I set my heart upon learning. At 30, I had planted my feet firm upon the ground. At 40, I no longer suffered from perplexities. At 50, I knew what were the biddings of heaven. At 60, I heard them with docile ear. At 70, I could follow the dictates of my own heart for what I desired no longer overstepped the boundaries of right. It took him 70 years, in other words, basically the whole lifespan of a person, to finally restrain his own passions and, and develop a character that he could be proud of. That that's a lifelong ende endeavor is what he was really saying, but it's a process. Um, and then there are certain milestones along that process where you'll see progress. Uh, but a lot of people never at 15 set their heart upon learning. They, lifelong commitment to learning and personal development is not for them. They don't care about that. They just want to have a good time. And if, uh, if they are those good time folks, they'll peak early and they're, they won't leave a legacy. They won't have a huge impact on others. Um, it, they will live a selfish existence. And that's the difference. I like your comparison that you made um, as a psychopath friend um, on social media. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, I think, very well put. And I think the... the, the, the the majority, I think, of users in the US are finally waking up to this. One is this intrusion of privacy, and then the other side is that it is nothing healthy that that comes out of these algorithms. And again, this can be fixed, right? So there is a model for um, a conscious and uh, a useful friend uh, that could be social media. But the question is, can they make enough money with this? And it is the corporate culture that these companies have. Is that compatible? And, when you watch the social dilemma, it is mm -hmm. almost like recovering criminals. Well, when you see yep. the former executives of these companies, so they, they know they had a conscience and then it, yeah. it bothered them for years, but they made a lot of money. They made bundles of money. And then eventually when they were rich, they got out, right? So they didn't get out on the first day when they realized what's going on. They got out when they were rich and they could exit their stock options. But you feel that this is laying on them. It's, it's, it's definitely a weight. And that is a really strange um, development because Silicon Valley didn't really start out that well. It started out as a kind of more hippie-ish idea of democratizing access to knowledge. At least that was the, the big overtone. It got very commercial um, in the 90s. But I think in the early days, there was a lot of goodness to it. And I think we see that. The internet has really delivered on this. But there's been... Believe that? And I, do you, be and I do you believe that? To can I just ask? Can I just, can I just jump in and ask... Um, 
do you believe that really, or do you, are you willing to entertain the idea that that perception could be attributed to some historical revisionist uh, PR <laughs> on the behalf of the, no, I mean, because, I, because like, I, was I, in it. I, was I think they, in it. they I looked, have, I met a ton of people oh, who really? had exactly that mindset. And now you can say, uh, oh, well, that depends on the time frame. At the but top? These people are still around. And maybe they are just a minority. They're never the majority. You could make that argument. But there was a strong movement that was actually driving a lot of those forces. And then, obviously, I blame it on VCs, right? VCs give you so much money. And you say, well, it's great, right? Why, why wouldn't I take a couple million? And then you put them to your business. And 12 months later, they say, well, but now we need to have 10 times the amount of users. And you're like, uh, what? And then you go somewhere where you don't really want to go. And then they say, well, you did it last year. So it's a bit like a criminal gang, so to speak. You know, they, yeah. they force you to do something illegal and then they hold it against you the rest of your life. And I feel this is, it's more of a conscious on the VCs, but they, they, their hands are clean, right? They never got their hands dirty. That would be my yeah. explanation. Well, the money's... Yeah, I think that's true. But again, remember the Pareto principle that 80% of results come from 20% of causes. So even if 80% of the people in Silicon Valley had the kind of uh, peacenik hippie, you know, change the world for the better mindset, and they're your, your boots on the ground engineers, the, the functional people who, who work in the business and make things happen, the 20% of people actually driving 80% of the outcomes might not be those people. It might be the other 20% of the people involved in the business who are you know, at the top in the power structures, the CEOs, the CTOs, COOs, who may have a, an agenda that's um, more selfish, more, more profit-centered, profit, you know, a stronger profit motive. And of course, you know, nobody really wants to be um, aligned with just profiteering regardless of the impact on society nobody wants to be seen in that way so they have a powerful incentive to retroactively um you know massage the narrative around what they what they've done and make it seem like the the culture of silicon valley is you know very enlightened when in fact it's 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 just free market capitalism which is great you know free market capitalism is great but but you can't do free market capitalism um, without some really fundamental awareness that that's the game you're playing. Capitalism gets dangerous when, you, when you're playing that game under false pretenses. When you think that you're doing something not for profit, but for good, then you will be easy to dupe. And people who are there and who make no bones about being there for profit, you know, they're going to see an advantage and they're going to take it because that's what you do. Um, yeah, what I feel, I feel it, just is, observing. It, it is a problem of time horizon. So there's a short-term mm -hmm. optimization graph and there's a long-term optimization graph. Duping your users and being, being just a psychopathic friend is not going to give you a long-term result. As a girlfriend, boyfriend, as a spouse, or as a company, it's just not going to end well. And you know that, but you still might go for it because you feel that's the best solution for you. And I think this is okay. It's just people need to recognize this. And I always say that, you know, we've been been living in the civilization and cities for so long but still we have to see we seem to have a stable amount of psychopaths in our society of criminals that criminal behavior should be you can say eradicated right because we genetically select the next um the the next generation as to be one that fits right into society that has made their life was able to live their life very properly in that society so i feel like well, let's these be clear. things are necessary of Let's be clear about one society. thing. We just need to develop 
a certain we need to get away from this naivete that a lot of people have so we need to I we need to see society as it is i agree i agree with that but let, but i want to i want to clarify um and we're, we're very um cavalier about how we toss around terms like psychopath or narcissist i mean i kind of use that term or introduce that term to the conversation and so i need to take ownership of that um but when i talk about someone being a narcissist or a toxic narcissist uh, that's very different from being a psychopath. Being a uh, someone who's a psychopath or a sociopath, which those terms aren't really clinically used anymore. The term is now antisocial personality disorder, or in, in Europe, dissocial personality disorder. Someone who's actually struggling from that actual psychological condition is not necessarily a, a bad person. Um, in fact, the world needs psychopaths. The world needs sociopaths. Yeah, some of your top performing CEOs, doctors, lawyers, politicians, some of the some of the people who are like driving society forward are, you know, they ha they they fit the criteria for these diagnoses and they often go undiagnosed because they don't run afoul of the law. And people with antisocial personality disorder and dissocial personality disorder get a really bad rap because uh, there's a disproportionately large percentage of the prison population that also fits that, diagnos that diagnosis. And so we sort of lazily associate these conditions with being a criminal or being a bad person, when in fact what they really are is the, the alphas of society. They're the alpha predators of society, of, of the human population. And human, humanity, just like every other species, needs alphas, and we should not demonize them. Um, so I, I really think that actually it, it sounds counterintuitive to say, and it's not socially acceptable, and it's probably social suicide to say this, but it's the truth that we owe a lot of our species development to to what we would call, in a cavalier way, sociopaths, and we need to stop yeah. demonizing that diagnosis. Oh, oh yeah, but, yeah. I, I, fully, uh, I fully agree with you on that yeah. point, and I think it's a marker for how much... But you got to watch exposure. them, right, because they are predators. I mean, they are the alphas, so... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a marker of how much risk people are willing to take. And it's it's yeah, it's obviously there is a deeper reason why these behaviors are part of pretty much any society you go in the world, or every single society. You can go to yeah. Papua New Guinea and you will find the same behaviors in a certain amount of people. So there is something to it, and I think we can't just we can talk it away with some theory where we feel well this is a negative behavior and we should suppress it. I think you, you, we absolutely agree on this. I think it's just about accountability because sociopaths, like anybody, they respond to incentives. You know, you give, they're very rational people. They're, and in fact, that's probably the primary difference between what we would call a sociopath and everybody else. Everybody else tends to respond more strongly to empathy, to the feelings. They're, they're emotionally driven. Whereas someone who we would consider a psychopath or a sociopath is someone who is a more logical, less empathetic, less feelings-driven person. But, but just because they're driven less by feelings doesn't mean they're driven less by incentives. So when we have the right incentives in the relationships in society, and when we structure incentives appropriately, and we, we make it clear that there's accountability, that if you do good things, you'll be rewarded, if you do bad things, you'll be punished. Then I think people who are um, psychopaths that that actually have good impulse control, which weak impulse control is part of the classic diagnosis for antisocial personality disorder, you know, psychopathy, sociopathy. But there are a lot of people who are on that spectrum, and it's a spectrum who do have good impulse control, and the ones with good impulse control will be 
phenomenal people, but you do have to you do have to structure their incentives appropriately. It's all about incentives for me, anyway. Well, I can see a the knowledge that you, you have in that field. And you must have clearly thought about that, and b how specific you you are with the terms, which I guess is part of your your habit and part of your profession, right? So um, you run your legal prop, uh, your legal. Um, professional office in uh, Nashville, which often is associated with with a higher degree and that's probably an image um, and just just like a an image that people have in their mind but it's associated with a higher degree of individuality if i think of cities in in the u.s um, and i think of high individuality i would think of many cities in texas I would think of natural. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would come to mind, and I think this shines through with what with what you just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know what? There would be no Texas without Tennessee. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and I love to remind my friends in Texas of that. Uh, there would be no Texas without Tennessee. Uh, they would they would be part of Mexico without Tennessee. Uh, and so I think that they're they're sister states that they they definitely. Um, there's a strong cultural affinity between Texas and Tennessee. Um, you look at a city like Austin, Texas, for example, pretty liberal city, just like Nashville is a pretty blue city in an otherwise red state. Um, Memphis and Knoxville also pretty blue cities. And if you look at the state flag for Tennessee, it's a red uh, with a blue circle and, and three white stars. And I always consider to, um, Nashville and Knoxville and Memphis to be sort of blue stars on the otherwise red background of, of the state. Um, so they're pretty progressive, but, and Austin is, is like that as well. It's a pretty progressive city, but they both have the arts in common. You know, there's a lot of music. Nashville's called Music City USA. That's, that's what it's known for. Um, you know, the Grand Ole Opry was there. It's the, the home of country music. Um, and it's just sort of like the hub for a lot of, of historically music and art and everything, um, in, in this part of the country, at least. You've got some other really art-heavy uh, cities like Asheville, North Carolina, and then of course, you know, New York is a haven for the arts. San Francisco, uh, Miami, you know, for for different types of for different types of art. But in the South, I mean, and especially for country music and things that are popular here, um, Nashville is really the hub of all of that. And I think people come here for the same reasons they go to L.A. They come here to make it. Um, I was actually just talking to a, a friend of mine who's the executive director of the National Alliance on Mental, Mental Illness, and she was talking about the mental health work that, that they're doing in Davidson County, where Nashville is, and she was talking about how many people come to them for help because they came to Nashville to make it as a, as a musician, as a singer-songwriter, and they, they didn't. You know, It's a tough industry. It's hard to make it, and then when they don't make it, they encounter issues like depression, substance abuse, and so on. Not to mention all the financial struggles that a struggling artist can have. So um, Nashville, you're right. It's a very independent city. It's like a place like LA where you can go and make it big, or you can go and wait tables. <laughs> you know, like uh, is the, the old running joke about actors in New York or uh, stage actors in New York and film actors in LA. It's the same thing in Nashville. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a very individualist city. You're right. You know, I, I live in San Francisco, and we had this, the, the big exit um, out of California, especially San Francisco. We lost um, a huge amount of people. 
that the estimates are somewhere between 30 to 50 percent of people who actually had something to do in the city of San Francisco. So they commuted from nearby cities. And Nashville, Austin, Miami are typically the choices for most people that would exit the city. Um, very often they would go back home to their parents if they're young enough. Otherwise, they would just move their family to one of those destinations. And there's other places, but those were certainly the, the, the prime suspects. And one of the things that a lot of people mentioned, and I'm not sure how much that fits in, and there is obviously the political debate in California, and especially the cities in California, are terribly run. Um, they're basically, it's basically like an anarchy. Um, there's a lot of virtue signaling on a political level, but there isn't any, anything goes. Um, there's very little things that actually get enforced in San Francisco. I think there's parking and maybe um, some violent crime. Everything else is, is it's basically open to anyone who is here. There, there's, no, um, there's no parole. You basically, um, the DA basically refuses to prosecute anything. Um, we're very strange places, homeless people everywhere, and they, they're being ignored. They're not being helped, um, but they're also not being hassled. So every, everything goes, anything goes. And, and I saw that Oakland is going to start paying, um, and th I think this is an unconstitutional and racist policy, by the way, but they're going to start making $500 payments, no questions yeah. asked, to low-income families, but only people of color. So yeah. they're actually using racial discrimination to determine who gets publicly funded funds, like like government money, taxpayer money, is going to be redistributed to people, no questions asked, uh, for basically a universal basic income, but it's race-based. And I think that's a horrible precedent. It's a horrible principle. It's a racist yeah, principle. Yeah, once a wife. It will and once think, a wife yeah. in, that, in that way. I, mean, I think it's unconstitutional. Right? So, yeah. yeah, I think everyone agrees, but you know, it's Oakland. It's more, it, they, they put out these policies, it's it's 90% virtual signaling. I don't, it will probably never happen because you don't have the money for it. I, I do think that there is a lot of good with UBI. Well, one, one argument that I wanted to make to, before we go into these specifics is, and you said that earlier with people going to national and going to LA and they're trying to make it. And I think this is a very American thing and this is a wonderful thing, right? It, 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 there's probably only good things on average that come out of it, even if it doesn't work out for a lot of individuals. But if you see social media and if you see how the world has already transformed itself in the last 10 years, what I sometimes feel is that the expectations of what defines success have been going up so much, especially in cities that are, that are more open, that are more cloudified, so to speak, where more people think in these terms of social media and the way they think the world should run. So they, they raise their own expectation of what defines success and everything else is, is a frustrating failure. And hmm. the, there's only so many actors that we need that are really famous, right? So maybe it's a thousand people, maybe it's 5,000. It's a relatively small number. You can say the same for country singers. Nobody can listen to 100,000 country singers and make them famous. It's just not possible. We can listen to them, but they wouldn't be famous. What I feel like everyone wants to be famous, that was true before, right? But people always felt that was a special thing where they needed to be super, super lucky and they need to take a huge risk. But relatively few, people, relatively few people went for it. And now because of social media or because whatever it is, everyone wants to be not just famous. You know, when you look at young people, they all want to be YouTubers. They all want to be, um, they all want to be t on TV um, or they want to they be uh, actors. It seems like 
these expectation levels, what, it, what happened is we, we put this huge depression on ourselves because right now we can't really fulfill the expectations we have of ourselves and of our friends. I agree with that, but I think, it, I think that that's a symptom of a deeper problem. And it's a, the, the deeper problem is a lack of awareness in two major fields that just are not effectively taught in school. Um, one is philosophy. There's, there's virtually no critical thinking that's being taught in a systemic and meaningful way throughout the public school system. We don't teach philosophy in, uh, in public schools. And philosophy comes from two Greek words. It's, it's actually a compound word, philo and sophia, right? Philo is love, and it's specifically the kind of love that the Greeks referred to as brotherly love, you know? It's the love of a brother, like the love of a relative, philo. Uh, and Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom. So philosophy is the love of wisdom. How can we not love wisdom? How can we want, how can we value anything more than wisdom? Wisdom is what lets us make good choices. It's all about, philosophy is all about, all about making good choices. And what should we be teaching children in schools, if not how to make good choices for themselves? The fact that we're not teaching philosophy is an egregious oversight. But if we teach critical thinking, then people will start to critically think about the government. They will start to ask themselves, is this a good policy? Does this person really have my best interests at heart? Do they just want my vote? Are they using me? And those are uncomfortable questions for politicians who control the publicly funded school system and use it to indoctrinate children generation after generation into a two-party system that has no one's best interest at heart. So it's no wonder the way education is structured that we don't teach philosophy, but it's because we don't teach philosophy that people make stupid choices, they make bad choices, they make choices against their own self-interest because they're not taught how to love wisdom. And then the other field that needs to be taught is economics. Economics is the science of human decision-making. It's the reverse side of the coin of philosophy. Philosophy teaches you about meaning and value and purpose, how to critically think, how all of that works and what your values should be. But then economics is the mechanics of all of that. It's, it's the engineering to the theoretical physics, right? It's how to put all of that into practice. Economics starts with a single simple principle. And that principle is that incentives matter. And when we look at the incentives that, that we, you know, respond to in our behavior, whether they're social media companies or government, I mean, it's literally everything that you're talking about. Every, all of these various issues, they are boiled down to really two deficiencies in society, a lack of wisdom and a lack of love for wisdom, so poor philosophy, and a lack of understanding about how human beings make decisions, the science of human decision-making. And um, I would recommend two books to start your journey to solving these deficiencies in your own life, no matter who you are. And the first one is Ideas Have Consequences by Richard M. Weaver. Um, this book is fundamental, I think, for every person. I think you, you, if, you, if you can get a copy of this and read this, it, it, I can guarantee you it will change your life. Um, and then the other one is Common Sense Economics by Dr. James Courtney and a number of other economists. There are several authors, but it's Common Sense Economics. Both of these books are very easy to read at an eighth grade reading level. Any person can read them. Any person can get a lot out of them, guaranteed to change your life. 
um, and they're just really, really good. The economics book, Common Sense Economics, talks about economics generally. It talks about economics and good government, and it also talks about economics and personal finance. Um, so there are you know, three main divisions of that book, and every single part of it is useful. And I think if more people took um, the path, uh, like Confucius, right, of setting themselves to, to a, a lifelong commitment to learning and personal development, and they started with these two books and then built on and built on and built on with, with related reading, they'd have better outcomes in their lives. They wouldn't be so depressed because they, they wouldn't be spending all their time on Instagram looking at fake people and their fake lives that, you know, they're, they're just showing you the highlights, right? It's like reading the news, but never reading the articles, only reading the headlines and letting yourself get all worked up about it emotionally. It's the same way with social media. When we look at someone's Instagram feed, we're literally seeing the high points of their life that they've personally selected and curated to brag, to say, look at how great my life is. Look at where I'm visiting. Look at where I'm traveling. Look at what I'm eating. Look at what I'm wearing. And they're, they're literally broadcasting the best, but they never show themselves on Instagram at the, in their darkest hours. They don't show themselves without makeup or when they're down or when, I think you that's know, a good friend. People actually just post that. Um, like that's that's another new trend. Um, I'm, I think you're yeah. absolutely right with a lot of um, these remarks. And one thing that I would say that moder but we have to keep in mind to moderate that. It's one thing to to feel like we should teach philosophy and economics, and I'm fully with you. That's one of the two things that probably don't get enough exposure in most um, classrooms. But on the other hand, I was exposed to tons of philosophy when I was 17, 18, 19. I read Hegel, I read Kant, I read Schopenhauer. You know what? I couldn't understand it. I mean, I could understand the warts, right? I could understand what they are trying to say. But it didn't... I, I couldn't find an, a connection that made sense to me because I didn't have the life experience. And that's not about IQ, this... this or I a just, teacher. You need a teacher. It's like, I how can people learn if there's no one there that. to teach them? But... I'm not saying we shouldn't teach it. I'm just saying the expectation that people understand what's in these books, I think it's relatively rare. That doesn't mean we shouldn't teach and try. Why give up before we try? No, I mean, I'm with right. you. But my expectation would be there is relatively few that actually sticks. Now, I picked it up later on again, and then I fully understood it, or like partially, and I definitely didn't fully understand it. But it helped me to have this prior knowledge and then, then, then just build from it. So it is a shortcoming. And... The question is why, and maybe you, you know the answer to this, we, we see these shortcomings of people developing in ways that we feel are strange looking at them, right? And we, we say, well, the schools might play a big impact. And I think we, we have the school system that prepares students for, for a situation that was normal 50 or 100 years ago, but the work environment has changed, the learning environment has changed. And 100%. That's, it's, it's a bureaucratic institution, so it changes not at all until we, unless we really force it to. But before that, all the failing institutions go woke for a while, right? So that seems to be when your business model fails, you go crazy woke, and then you fail anyways. That seems to be true in journalism, seems to be true for colleges, seems to be true probably for schools at some point. And I think this change is underway already. Um, but why do you think? 
do we see this major societal change if if I come from a different country and I land in the US? A, I already know everything about the US political debate, which is odd, because 20 years ago, nobody really cared. There was a little bit of that, but not that deep. And second, we, if you land here, you feel like, whoa, this place is ideologically on fire. There is so much change going on, or at least people are abstracted out. They feel like there could be a big amount of change coming on both sides, or it, you can say there's hundreds of different sides. Why do you think does it happen now? Why do you think we, have, we didn't have this debate 40 years ago when there was actual communism on the other side that we could have used as a template? Well, I think there's still actual communism. I, th I think it's still, it may not be uh, overt and there may be a lot of lip service paid to the death of socialism, the death of communism, the death of Marxism. Um, I think that's, I think that's premature. It's, it, we're, we're declaring victory against Marxism prematurely because you're starting to see a, a large resurgence of that um, as, author, uh, as authoritarianism increases, so does um, the attraction, the allure for authoritarians of Marxist policies. I mean, authoritarianism and Marxism, uh, Marxism always go hand in hand, whether it's, you know, fascist socialism or nationalist socialism or communism or some other version of Marxism, but they're all, they're all the same. They're all just variations on cancer. It's like, they're all cancer. One's liver cancer, one's lung cancer, you know, one's brain cancer, but they're all, can <laughs> they're all cancer. So, I mean, I like you, your you just need a, yeah, you just need a healthy dose of radiation to kill it all. But um, why is that the case? I think it's because we're in the information age. Um, I heard a guy say not too long ago, or maybe I read it in a book, it's, it, it's all a blur, but he said, if I emailed you the plans for a B-2 bomber, it would get lost in your email inbox. Like information isn't, you can't sell information anymore. People aren't willing to pay for information because they're awash in it. There's just more yep. information than, than anybody can handle. And I think that that's, that's part of it, is that we have the Library of Alexandria at our fingertips, and then some. And I think people get emotionally stirred up, partially because of the media intentionally stirring up emotion and hype. Um, I think social media companies do the same thing, and they do it for the same reason. They have a profit motive to do so. And most people are, are not aware of that. They're not hip to it. And they're, they are at an identity level, at a core identity level, a lot of people are invested in labels they're they're fans of things and what is a fan it's short for fanatic they're, they're they are fanatics about things they obsessively collect material possessions that are branded you know whether it's gucci bags or louis vuitton or star wars paraphernalia or star trek stuff or whatever right like people are collectors they're trying to fill the holes in their lives with stuff this materialism, um, and then also they're they're ideolo they're ideological hoarders as well. Um, they're what are the two big brands? I mean, it's Republican politics and Democrat politics. Um, as someone who has for at least a decade, I don't, I can't remember exactly when I shifted out, um, but I think it was probably at the end of the first Bush administration. I really solidly became. A libertarian, not a capital L libertarian, not the Libertarian Party, but a lowercase L libertarian, where I'm I'm just not a joiner, I'm not part, I'm not ideologically aligned with anybody. I think we should treat every human being with charity, compassion, understanding, all of that, right? And I but I also don't buy into the whole woke thing. I'm I'm not woke at all. I'm I'm 
versus like woke people, I'm basically comatose. I, I have no wokeness whatsoever. I don't speak the vocabulary. I don't find any of that valuable because what they're all looking for is not just tolerance, but validation, acceptance. Like I have to say to a person who's woke, what you're saying is true for you. And I don't believe in true for you. I don't believe in personal truth. I think that there's truth. And then there's every person's individual subjective experience of that objective truth. And I'm not going to say, oh, well, that's true for you, because I think that that's not true. I think that's, I think that you have a perception, I have a perception, and the truth is probably somewhere in between. And I don't want to be coerced or forced into saying something that I don't personally believe is true. And I think that that's what woke culture mandates and requires. And that's why I think it's dangerous. I think it's ideological authoritarianism run amok for what they perceive to be virtuous uh, purposes. But the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So even if they have the best of intentions, I think their uh, methodology is cancer. I think it's it's horrible. Yeah, there is, there is a lot to... to to this new phenomenon, and I think we agree generally on the on the the tenets um, how wokeism and many parts of it are something pretty nasty, but it's wider than this. And I think people associate it with a with postmodernism, which doesn't seem to be so right. Then people associate it with Adorno, which is probably more right. But this guy's really old, and I'm really. <laughs> I'm really surprised, and nobody's really given me a good answer. Lots of this stuff has been around for a long time and has been debunked and has been rejected by pretty much any country on the planet. Weirdly enough, all of these ideas come out of Germany, um, so I'm, I feel really guilty. <laughs> there's, well, that's, there's a lot that's of the German part. way to feel really guilty. Like every really, after World War II, that's that's all Germans seem to be allowed to feel is guilt, and you guys need to forgive yourselves, man, because you're not part of that old. No, no, no. no. I'm, regime. I'm I'm joking, but it's there's a lot of really <laughs> nasty intellectual stuff that came out of Germany, and you know, Karl Marx was a German, uh, and so Nietzsche, we, we, who ironically we, died of syphilis. I mean, the most appropriate end of any human being ever, right? Like Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. He, but he isn't as dark. I think people make it darker than I feel what he actually wrote. But obviously, he was he, he was on a different scale of intelligence and uh, arrogance. Yeah, so that's true. Yeah, uh, arrogance for sure. Yeah. But what what really surprises me is why does this stuff come up now, and what's wrong that it gets so many followers? So clearly, these people must be unhappy with what's currently going on. And I trace this back to the lack of opportunities. Um, I've traced this back to the race. The, of expectation, but on the other hand, there's very few opportunities. So in many coastal areas for a young person to find a, a job and something that makes enough money uh, consistently, not just for a month or two, to raise a family is almost impossible. Even paying rent is almost impossible. And now you can say, oh, well, you can always go to another place in the US, and I think this would work. Or but start a, a business. People, this is not, you start a business. But even the opportunities to start a business, I think there is a not, they're still better than anywhere else on the planet in the U.S., but they're, they're more limited than it was 15 years ago or 25 years sure. ago. Although we have more access to information, it should have gotten easier. But to really extract money out of those is really tough. Uh, it's not impossible. But, and people should, I really, but on any chance, I encourage people to do this because the self-fulfilling prophecy, A, and B, is more entrepreneurs we have, <clears throat> they generate opportunities. It's not a zero-sum game. They, they right. have more opportunities for other entrepreneurs. 
But it seems like there's a lack of opportunities and people can feel that they can relate to or that they can discover for themselves and they get really pissed. And I think that's why we well, see you're in California. extreme positions now. You're in California. Yeah, you're living through. Yeah. So you're living through the, you know, the result of overregulation. What is it? What happens when your government tries to take on regulation of every aspect of life? They choke the life out of business. They tax their people to death. What happens? People respond to those negative in incentives. When you tax something, you get less of it. When you subsidize something, you get more of it. It's fundamental. It's like gravity. What goes up must come down. Fundamental laws of economics that will never change. Because my, like my grandmother, who's 100 years old, my grandmother says, what, what I've learned in my life is that times change, but human nature never changes. This is a woman who saw, she was born in 1920, right? So she saw uh, things go from living with her family of six plus her parents and her grandmother in a, in a farmhouse with no running water and no electricity to putting a man on the moon. And she's now on her third. You know what I mean? Like she's, she's seen the civil rights movement. She's seen World War II. She's seen um, the Vietnam War. She's seen the fall of the Berlin Wall. She's seen the fall of capitalism. She's seen like the 90s, the World Trade Center attacks. Like she's lived through all of this. Her mind is still sharp. And she's telling me, I've lived 100 years, times change, human nature never changes, never. And that's why economics doesn't change. And that's why when you tax something, you'll always get less of it. So when you tax income and you tax productivity and you tax business and you tax jobs, you'll get less of them. And when you subsidize homelessness, when you subsidize not having a job and staying at home, when you subsidize having children out of wedlock, when you subsidize all these self-destructive behaviors, you will get more of them. And that's what California has done. They've taxed productivity and they've subsidized the opposite of productivity. And that's why people are leaving there to go to states like Tennessee that has no income tax. We don't tax income here. We tax consumption. We have sales tax. So there, the incentives are better here for you to start a business, to, for you to have more like economic opportunity. It's a, a less regulated society. So it's easier for you to do things like own a gun, defend your family um, and that sort of thing. Now that comes along with more personal responsibility, but there are always trade-offs. There's no such thing as a free lunch. That's another fundamental economic principle. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You're going to have to pay, pay for everything in some way. And so the way you pay for more freedom is with more personal accountability. Um, and I think that's what you're, that's what you're seeing. And to, the, the question that you raise, like, why is all this happening and why is it happening now is a really complex question. But there is a book that really tackles this on tackles this in a comprehensive way and I think provides a satisfying answer. And it's called The True Believer by Eric Hoffer, H-O-F-F-E-R. And the true believer by Eric Hoffer is just, uh, he won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It was awarded by Ronald Reagan in the 80s to Hoffer. He was a, a brilliant, what I would consider blue collar philosopher. Just a brilliant guy, very humble. Few people have ever, ever heard of him, but he's amazingly influential and just a brilliant dude. And that book pretty much answers your question in full. It's far more than we could get into in a podcast episode. Okay, that sounds awesome. <clears throat> Am I going to read into it? When did he write this book? Relatively recently? 
no, no. Hoffer's, I think he's been dead for a while. I think, I think it was written in the fifties, sixties. I'd have to look it up, but um, okay. I read it you know, a few years ago uh, for the first time. And I started, I like, it was so moving. And so I was like, Oh my God, this is super relevant to everything that's going on right now. Like, where has this been all my life? And I started posting uh, quotes of it on Facebook. And one of the, my buddies from law school goes, that's my favorite book ever. Like, I'm so glad that you're reading that. That's just, that's really good. He was like, how, how relevant is this to today? And I said, super, super relevant. Like it basically is a, a perfect explanation of everything that's going on right now. Okay. It's yeah. A treasure. I, I love to learn more about that. I just, I feel we, and I think every state in the U S and places in the U S has a slightly different strategy about that. But we feel that there is definitely a strong change in how big parts of society have moved. And what I've realized there is there is this argument, and I think it's it's somewhat libertarian, that goes, well, if everyone else just go goes crazy, I go somewhere where where people are not crazy, right? So to speak. So I kind of withdraw from that part of society. I tell them, you know, if you want to drop out of the U.S., you're good to go. But obviously nobody wants to because the Fed prints all the money. So nobody really wants to drop out of the, the union right now because we all want that sweet money that seems to be free. So that's never going to happen. And uh, the problem with that perspective, that's I, I was pretty much on this for the last couple of years. I would say, well, you know, we don't need the dollar anymore. We just go Bitcoin. Um, and if you have the dollar, that's great. If we... We, we don't really need to worry about these people, so to speak. We just, we just build a wall, sort of, but it can be a mental wall. It doesn't have to be a real wall, right? So anything that, that they feel there isn't enough value to, to stay in a useful collaboration, we just shut ourselves off. But what I've learned relatively recently, I've changed my mind on this. And I felt when you think about the dollar is, is maybe in trouble, but it's relatively easy to fix. It's not, a, it's not a really tough fix. Most cities in the U.S. seem to be pretty desperate in certain areas, but it's not a really difficult fix if we all pull in the same direction. And there is 100% on anything, of course, but there is a certain way we, we can find um, solutions in the middle. We, we've been doing this for so many hundreds of years in the U.S. I feel there is a larger picture that people that are libertarians kind of shut out. And I think it's not healthy. It's a bit like saying, you know, we don't really need roads because there's some people out here who don't like to, a road to be built. So what do we do? We all just get a pickup truck and we just leave the dirt road because it's too difficult to even make it a road or we don't build. Or we privatize the road like they did in Indiana. They privatized huge sections of the interstate there and it was phenomenally successful. I, I don't think that but the libertarian the argument is... It's not necessarily yeah, the, the money arguments, also that people obstruct the road to construction sometimes. But the libertarians don't want to obstruct the development of infrastructure. They just don't want to be forced to pay for things that are not really public goods. And, and roads aren't, aren't the best example because they are public goods. But, but no, there are lots of things that go... My argument oh, well, is that you have to, have to put all that effort into persuading people and keep trying. Because without society and putting big parts of your society behind you... The game's already over. You will, you cannot flourish as much as you can if you convince the rest of the society that what you have in mind is the best solution. That's but how can you persuade them? Thing. Yeah, and I hear you and I agree with you. But how? But it sort of begs the question: How can you persuade anyone if you rob them of the tools of good 
choice choice making decision making right and we've this is well traveled ground in this conversation alone and you know we've we've robbed them of access to philosophy we've robbed them of access to ac economics people in their public education people can get that it's like you know jesus well, christ well like you said they're not going to get there on their own because that's where the sick people are not where the healthy people are so he wanted to convince the the hard, most hard-nosed jews he could find and make sure yeah. they know about what what his power is so to speak and i think this willingness to convince other people is a bit of the problem i mean on the on the book side they want to convince a lot but they don't want to talk because they feel like well can we really hold it up and they, they, they don't want to convince they want to coerce they don't want to convince that's why they can't that's why they have cancel <laughs> yes. that's why they have cancel culture they they're not yes. out to convince you Conver convincing you requires you to persuade convince them or to work. Work. yeah 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 they they'll they'll convince you in the re-education camps that they want to send mm -hmm. you to i mean that's that uh, you know, you'll you'll have to apologize to death, and and you'll get canceled. You'll lose your livelihood and everything if you're not woke, and that's the danger of not being woke. But free people will never elect that. I mean, maybe, but they will regret it pretty quickly. Free people. Uh, well, we just did. We just did elect that. We just <laughs> well, did at a federal call level. Woke. No, but I would call Kamala Harris. She's definitely part of the the woke elite. Yeah. And and I, I think, think Biden. Yeah, but Biden's a Trojan horse. Uh, he was. Look at him. I mean, he's falling up the stairs, getting on Air Force One. The NRA's out there publishing ads like, you'll never get our guns because we keep them upstairs. Ha, ha, ha. You know, like he's he's a joke and everybody knows that he's a joke and everybody knows that he's probably not going to survive his first term in office. And then Kamala Harris will be president. And, uh, she, you know, it's a Trojan horse administration and everybody knows it. Nobody wants to talk about it because it's super uncomfortable. But uh, I don't think Biden's really a factor. I don't think he's really running his He's not an intellectual leader. He's a puppet. He's a very obvious puppet. He's basically yes, the equivalent of a house plant. Yeah, you, I think we, we 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 can all kind of see see the, these these main threats out there. But there is a larger duty, I think, for us as citizens is to convince and constantly persuade people. And if for some reason we I don't agree. succeed, we shouldn't just retreat and say, "Oh, well, then I'm just going to go where the people are like mine." Because that's I feel the mistake that we attribute to work people, right? They, if they don't, yes. Well, we instead of we we don't say we have to go to the gulag, but we would say, "Well, I'm just never going to talk to you again," or I like I, I restrain my communication. Let's put it this way. Yeah, and that's I think that's not a, it's not good for this country, and it's Agreed. it's something that changed me. Where I felt you know there is a lot of common ground, and it might be really uncomfortable to get there. But I think the common ground is 99% when you go down to the actually specific issues, right? Do we need to give money to people who are in need that are on the streets? Yes. I think everybody says yes. How do we do it and how do we enforce it? And then what do we do that people don't go crazy? Well, that's a slightly different story, but we need to help them. If this money comes out of voluntarily. a religious institution or not, yeah, maybe that's exactly. Religious institutions, I think voluntary, char charity is only charity if it's voluntary. And I think that giving giving voluntarily to help people is is real virtue signaling. You you brought up Jesus, right? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, "Render unto unto Caesar that which is Caesar, render unto God that which is God's." In other words, pay your taxes, meet your civic oblig obligations, even if you are oppressed. Which, by the way, the Jews at the time of Christ were severely oppressed and treated as second class citizens by the Romans. In fact, a Roman soldier walk or a Roman citizen walking along the road, if he encountered a Jew, could tell him, you, you have to walk with me and carry my burden for one mile. 
And what did Jesus say? He said, go the extra mile. Go, the, go. Don't just walk with him. Don't accompany him one mile and carry his burden. Go, go a second mile. That was beyond the legal obligation of the time, but it was an expression of charity, charity and concern for what the Jews at the time considered an enemy. It's part of what Jesus taught of love your enemies. But he also taught us to uh, you know, give charitably to those who are in need to take care of people. He didn't say give, you know, pay taxes and push for higher taxes so the government can do it for you. Charity is supposed to come directly from us, not from the no, government. But, but, you, but you know that, that atheists have the same religious instinct. They have the same exact expectation as everyone else who believes in a more common religion. Yeah. But they don't have the means. Right? Well, they, giving people money, there is, no, there is no, no function for this. There's no method. So their method is giving money through the government. Which There's tons of 501c3. I don't buy that, frankly. I, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. But honestly, look, look around. How many 501c3 nonprofit organizations that are not faith-based charities exist? No, and, and really, take a walk in San Francisco. Put, stuff your pockets with with cash or coupons for fast food restaurants or whatever you want, you know, and just start handing it out to bums on the street. I mean, that's taking care yeah. of your fellow man. Oh, people do that. People do that. That's why in all the rich neighborhoods. Yeah, great. <laughs> they, they're never, I mean, there's a sleeping neighborhood and then there's a neighborhood where you go during the daytime to collect right. some money. Um, so yeah. this system is in place. Uh, so I feel if, if you go down to how we live our lives and how we think about that, and I, I was talking to Jim Rod yesterday, who is, a very strong atheist, and I was trying to convert him to the to the to the utility of religion, so to speak, which I didn't <laughs> succeed. You know, I didn't go, didn't get anywhere. <laughs> but I think this this is an argument where people listen. People listen yeah. to what does religion actually deliver, and I think that's misunderstood. And I think yeah. this is a problem. Religion has been so old that it kind of doesn't explain itself so well anymore to people who are not already believers because it doesn't have to but because it has massive amounts of believers and it's like well we really don't care so much about the next group of new believers well individualism the failure of yeah individualism and the failure of religion kind of go hand to hand hand in hand and i'm not talking about individualism in a healthy general way but i'm talking about radical individualism and what in the early part of the 20th century the roman catholic church called the heresy of americanism you can go and look this up that americanism is yeah. considered a heresy by the catholic church it doesn't well, mean yes. that the catholic church is right, obviously yeah right it doesn't mean the catholic church considers america to be heresy or the idea of america america to be heresy instead it's it's this radical they what they called americanism is this radical hyper individualistic myself before all other people kind of approach right and what you when you started to see at christian religion decline was in the, the 1500s under Luther, Ulrich, and Zwingli, the three, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Ulrich, Zwingli, uh, Martin Luther, Ulrich, Zwingli, and John Calvin. So it's uh, Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. These were the three major leaders of Protestantism. And Protestantism has baked into the cake the atomization of society. Every single new Protestant denomination is predicated on separation from a preceding Protestant denomination. So how are new denominations born? They separate, they, they come up with some theological dispute or distinction or difference or political dispute or difference with their predecessor, and they separate off. 
And so it's just, you know, constant division and constant atomization. And in the United States, that religious and cultural ideological foundation was also the foundation of our political structure. We have, we don't have one unified government. We do kind of under the federal government and, and that's much stronger after the civil war, but we still have 50 individual sovereign states. Um, 50 laboratories of law, 50 different regulatory structures, 50, 50 different legislatures, um, 50 different judicial systems, right? It's everybody's different. They're all pretty individualist. If you don't like California, you can move to Tennessee or Wyoming or Montana or wherever, right? You can go somewhere else. Um, and, and different states have varying degrees of success. On, on one hand, I think California's economy is something like the eighth largest economy in the world by itself. Right. But on the other hand, people are fleeing in droves because of the crushing tax burden and insane government and overregulation. It's phenomenally successful on one hand and a dismal failure on the other, just depending on which axis you're looking at. Social yeah, California economic. has figured out how to how to be successful without a government. It's kind of like <laughs> when, when you go to Florida, it's almost the opposite. Like the government yeah. is excellent, but the the citizens, hmm, you know, you have to look <laughs> yeah. carefully to find someone you would describe as excellent. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. May maybe these things go together. And uh, yeah. I, I don't know what about the, the relative failure of religion in the US. It, it's kind of funny because that's been something that's been going on in Europe for the longest time. For Well, since Protestantism. Since, right? since Protestantism, Protestantism, but yeah. it's, I mean, it becomes the, 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 the really the, the, uh, when you ask people, do you subscribe to a religion? This has dropped off really the last 60, 70 years. Mm -hmm. Maybe they- Well, post-Vatican too, because Pro Protestant ideology, ideology started to infect uh, and really sonic thought. And there's some, and we're just getting borderline conspiracy theory territory here, but you look at what led up to the ideological changes in the Catholic church that led up to Vatican II, and you see the changes that were wrought by Vatican II, even though dogmatically nothing changed, the, the way dogma was um, distributed and taught, you know, sort of through the liturgies and the church and all of that in the Catholic church, that significantly changed with Vatican II. And so it was sort but of hang like... On, hang on, no. Well, well, what I wanted to get at is that the U.S. is the, but it's the same thing of states. Maybe I don't get it. But what I wanted to say is there's a marketplace of states, right? So we figure out what's best in the U.S. And I think everyone's trying to copy that from us and some get it right and some don't. But we also have this marketplace of religions. We're pretty unique in the world yeah. that we have a pretty widespread marketplace of religion. So we should do better than others. So religion should be more successful because it's built in in the U.S. And it used but to be, But we don't right, really have a big... We don't really have a big market because most of it, I mean, up until, I mean, for years, it was illegal for Catholics to even own land in the United States. Um, even though there are a lot of different religions in the United States, the vast majority of them are anti-Catholic. And I, I think that Catholicism, and the reason I'm, I'm kind of hammering this point and we started talking about Vatican II is I really do believe that, that um, anti-Catholicism anti is dangerous because whereas Protestantism has baked into the cake division and the atomization of social structures, whether they're you know, families or churches or larger social groups, Catholicism has a unifying effect. And it's like the opposite of Protestantism in that the word Catholic 
comes from the Greek katholos, which means universal. It's the universal church. It's meant to wrap everybody up in this one church, this one body, and really bring bring them all together in a unifying way. And, and that's what's healthy for society. What we're seeing um, in the atomization of society, people sort of dividing off into to their own echo chambers, not really trying to persuade others. I think that comes from a deep ideological root that that is uh, intrinsically tied and inextricably bound up with Protestantism. And I think a more Catholic approach would be healthier for so- for society that needs unification right now, not division. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I don't know enough to be to be honest about the specifics. I, I I've studied the text pretty intensively. And I, I went through all the big um, three books of the New Testament. It's a little smaller, fortunately. It's easier to read. And you can say that the Catholics would make the same claim or the Jews would make the same claim about the Catholics. And, you know, Muslims make a similar claim um, to other people of the book, and especially infidels, right? Yeah. So I'm not sure this is really unique to Catholicism or Protestantism. Maybe it is. I actually don't know enough about the specific differences. And, you know, there's Orthodox Church, which was around at the same time. So it was a strong competitor for the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church was more organized, was more Roman. And the, the Orthodox part was more religious, so to speak. That's why it's called Orthodox. And it had slightly different opinions. But in the end, they came out relatively similar. The difference Maybe was the political. Off as much. Yeah, the difference was largely political up until a, a thousand, a thousand, almost eleven hundred AD when there was a big for where for political reasons, basically the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, excommunicated some of the patriarchs in Constantinople, and so that's where you started to really see a schism, a schism politically and the division of the church as a as a institution. But what's interesting is that from a dogmatic standpoint the Orthodox Catholics and the um, Western Catholics, the Holy Roman Catholic Church, um, really believe the same things. I mean, there's a bit of a difference when it comes to like, can priests can priests be married at, you know, at a certain point um, and things like that. There are some minor differences in the way it plays out doctrinally, but from a dogmatic standpoint, which is where the rubber meets the road, they're effectively still the same. There's both Catholic. Yeah. Um, and I was raised fundamentalist evangelical Protestant Christian in the in like the Southern Baptist denomination. My parents were charismatics, um, and although they might, my dad at least might resist that label. They both were were charismatics, kind of Jesus people in the seventies, and um, so I was raised up with that and like had to memorize the Bible from a very young age. And so I've, I've memorized large chunks of the Bible. I went to seminary for a year. I went to a Baptist seminary. But then in 2013, I converted to Catholicism because I, I, I was just grieved by all the division in, in Christianity. And I thought, is, is there a single body of Christianity that has a claim to being the true church that could actually unify all these disparate denominations? Like division is a big problem for me. Ideological division um, political division, like I don't like things that divide people because even though I'm a libertarian, like you're saying, I really believe that we need to constantly devote ourselves to the hard work of persuading others, of talking to them and being compassionate and like having good communication, listening. And I don't think we can do that if we're all divided along these lines. And Sir Francis Bacon wrote a wonderful essay hundreds of years ago called Of Unity and Religion. And in that essay, he talks about why 
unity in religion is important and why we should strive for orthodoxy in Christianity at least. And, you know, of course, uh, the, the Jews and the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Hindus and everybody, they, they all have similar related thoughts and issues, but ultimately religion, I think, ought to be a unifying force, both within the religion and then more broadly to humanity as a whole. Like, just because I believe in Catholicism doesn't mean that I have to hate a Muslim or a Jewish person or a Hindu or a Buddhist. Like, I should see them as brothers in in humanity. Like, we're all the same species. We all bleed red. We all have the same needs. And I should love them. And, and I hope that their religion teaches them to love me as well. Yes, I think there is always this part of religion, but you need to set a border to to something you're not in order to uh, to motivate your followers enough. I think this this has happened with every single religion. You come Hoffer out and you talks say about something. that. Yeah, you know, say say Islam, it came out and said, oh, all the people of the book are our friends, right? That was the first big story. And they, they conquered a lot of places. A big part of that conquest was, oh, you guys are going to be fine. You basically are Christians, you're Jews, we love you. We are all one cult. We all love the same God, right? As long as you and pay the tax. Kind of, but it didn't, play, didn't work out that way after 200 years because you've got to fortify your own base, right? You've got you to yeah. make sure, okay, these people give, give money to me. What, don't, don't give the taxes and all the donations to someone else. No, no, no. I'm the right interpretation of Allah's word. And uh, that, I think this is unavoidable. Even if you start out, like, like you would say, like you, you start your own cult um, and you say, well, this cult, everyone is, is welcome. Let's, let's just assume that. You start uh, yeah. and say we are very inclusive, and everyone can stay a Christian. Um, like in, in in Asia, a lot of people actually go to churches, and then they go to a temple, um, then they go to mm -hmm. a monastery, not a monastery, go to a mosque, and they believe in all three things kind of at the same time. They are like Buddhists too, and they're like, if you ask them, yeah, I'm Christian, Buddhist, um, Muslim, I'm like, well, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm 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 sharing my time. But sooner or later, that seems to be something that falls off these religions. They say, okay, now I fortify my base. I want you to give me the money and the, the, the human recognition and be going to conquer the world, so to speak. There seems to be no way out of this. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we were just too stupid 500 years ago and now we figured it out. I don't know. I, I feel like there's religion and then there's politics, right? And I think with it, what your phenomenon you're doing comes from the intersection of those two things. When you have pure religion, it's it's hard to... Um, have room for such terrestrial things as money and power structures and all of that. Like a, an actual religion is concerned with the transcendental, the things that are beyond this life. And that's the, the power of, for example, the mass and the liturgy in the mass. It's the power of the Eucharist. It's that when I, when I receive the Eucharist into myself, and I look at everyone else around me who's also receiving the Eucharist. I, I recognize in a very physical and real way that what is in me is in them too, that we're bound together by that. And that transcends space and time. And it's not just the people in with around me there attending that particular liturgy. It's every person who's ever received the Eucharist throughout all of time. And I'm connected to all of them, all the saints, all the martyrs, Every anonymous faithful Catholic that's ever lived who's received the Eucharist, I, it, we're all connected by that one ritual, that one beautiful expression of Christ and the real presence of Christ in that sacrament. And so that's a compelling thing for me. It's a transcendent thing for me. And that's what I believe religion is supposed to do. And when you start binding it up with 
political authority and terrestrial concerns about like money and all of that, you start to get away from, you know, what it's all about. Even Jesus said that, um, you know, don't be concerned with what you will eat or what you will wear. Don't be concerned with the things of today because your father will take care of you. Your father in heaven will take care of you. He says, consider the lilies of the field who is better arrayed than them. Consider the sparrows, you know, even, even they have enough to eat. Um, have faith and don't be concerned with the things of today and this physical life. Instead, drawn to more important, you know, transcendental things. And I think every good religion has that effect and it has that focus. And you start to see problems introduced when you start in when you start combining religion with politics and and money and all of those things. That's where you start to see human corruptions seep in. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I'm with you there. And, you know, Jesus was, was a bit of a hippie, we recall him today. <laughs> or, or, hit, or hippies took the best of Christ and, Maybe. you know, adapted it for their own purposes. Yeah. I feel there, there is something to hippies that's, that's constant in time. Maybe we change the words, but these been around forever. I sure. think they always get people together and then it goes the other way over time. But what I personally have experienced is that the, the power of religion, and I see this with my own children, right? So if I invoke the word of God, it is a very different reaction than when I tell them something to do. They're like, they ignore me completely. They're like, they look through me, right? When they, I give them to teenagers, when I give them personal advice, when I invoke the word of God, they listen. That doesn't mean they do it, but they listen. And it's, mm. it's anywhere you go, the, the influence of religion, if you can, can base your argument on religion and the wokeism has their own religion, so that's what I'm saying. They they use religious instincts in the exact same way. Um, well, wokeism is a religion. Progressivism yes, is a religion. And, you know, there's there's this. Every religion has a certain strength on weaknesses, and they they work out over time. But once yeah. you invoke religion, your own personal influence on society grows so much, and you have to be very responsible about not abusing it. And I think a lot of people are, but it takes a small minority to abuse it. And then suddenly you you have an army that basically goes and does whatever you want. Yeah. The the magnitude of religion and what it does with people is is pretty crazy, and people underestimate this hasn't changed over the centuries. Like it doesn't matter what you call it and how you define it. And some have because human nature doesn't change. Yeah. Yes, because some are more careful than others. But human nature doesn't change, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There is a DNA. DNA thing that makes us so vulnerable for this because someone needs to explain us this magic that's going on out there and then everyone has a slightly different answer um, for that but we still need like some it doesn't have to be a being but we need an explanation for what's going on or why we are here unless maybe the aliens finally come down and tell us right <laughs> well let me ask you this do you think that the answers are really I've asked you a couple of questions but uh, I, I feel like I've answered a lot more questions than I've asked so I want to ask you do you think that the answers are really as important as the questions mm. that is a good question let me put it in another way do you think that our society has this ironic uh juxtaposition uh, between a focus on science and an obsession with knowledge don't you think that that's self-contradictory because science think, isn't really a source of knowledge, is it? It's just a, a methodology for asking better and better questions, for refining a question pro questioning process. It's not science isn't really a vehicle for getting answers. So, don't you find that strange 
that we oh, we emphasize or, or pay a lot of lip service to science on the one hand, but we're obsessed with knowledge and answers. Well, I feel like this desire for figuring out how the world works is part of that religious instinct. And when you go back to very successful times of, of scientific discovery, people were basically extremely, they were extremely religious and very often Catholic. So you see this in the early 20th century, you see this in the early enlightenment. Those are driven by an extreme desire to figure out, okay, what, what is God up to? And how does, how does actually God work in the relationship with earth? And because you have to go for these extremes, you have to be out there and, and you have to go through a lot of knowledge and you, you have to take a lot of risks and people will not appreciate you if your scientific discoveries turn out to be false. So you don't know before you get started. We don't do this anymore. We do like these tiny layers and that's not science in my, in my definition. That's just bureaucracy. And the Soviet Union doesn't come up with a lot of science because it is bureaucratic and there's no, no risk taking inbuilt. So a part of religion determines a really high risk taking of figuring out how the world works. I think this is what we're lacking right now. There's too few people doing this and we don't need a ton of people, but we need a certain amount of like super AIs, people who know lots of different disciplines and just combine it together and use the human mind to, to scale out of this. And yes, knowledge is important because you don't want to do what someone else has already discovered. And I think this is why these, we have this download of information and it takes longer and longer to get to this point. And maybe we are 60 by the time we understand anything useful, like Confucius said. But the amount of knowledge we have to download, there is no way around this because otherwise we just repeat what other people have discovered, which is tough. So, so I guess, yes. I mean, an the answer is, yeah, it's weird, right? That people are obsessed with answers when it takes so long to get them. And really, there may not be anything useful that you get out of all those answers uh, for your own life. Um, don't you think that we would be better served by downgrading the value of knowledge in society and upgrading the value of wisdom? Do you think that that would be a good change, social change overall? I would love to. I'm struggling with that question, how we, we really define the border between knowledge and wisdom. It's, it's well, knowledge is knowledge has a clear philosophical definition, so I can help you with this. Okay. My undergrad degree is in philosophy, so I'll tell you. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. Wisdom is making good choices based on good values and principles. Like basically, it's your own uh, pursuit of making good choices and and living a virtuous life. And some of that definition is objective and and agreeable it is a large, large swaths of it. Most of it probably is subjective. Um, but knowledge is easier. Knowledge is a true justified belief. We all have lots of beliefs and we, ver we justify them lots of different ways. Sometimes through reason, but more often through empirical verification of our senses. But one thing that we all lack as a species, as a finite species, is a sense for truth. And the closest that we seem to have been able to come is consistency of experience. And I don't think consistency of experience is necessarily a, a good proxy for truth. I don't think that that really is the same as truth because you can consistently fool a finite creature and what we might consistently be experiencing might not be objective reality. Um, and simulation theory has, has spoken to this recently quite a lot. Uh, if you go and you look up anything about simulation theory. So it's very possible that because we don't really have a reliable sense for truth, that the only actual knowledge, since knowledge is a true justified belief that we may have, 
is like math and truisms, things that are true by definition. And if you're if you take that radical skeptical approach and you say, well, the only knowledge that I really have um, is just mathematics and truisms, then knowledge really isn't that useful to me in my life. What is useful to me are my beliefs, the consistency of my beliefs. And so faith becomes much more important. And it's for that reason that I would argue that faith is actually the primary uh, lens through which we all see the world as humans, not knowledge. And that science is just a vehicle for asking better questions. It's not a path to answers. It's not a path to knowledge. And so for that reason, we should focus on wisdom and not knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah, but, yeah I think you, you, you're onto something there. I mean, if you define wisdom in a way that you, you know where you want to go, you, you, you find a, a goal or target, um, and you define that, and then you take signs along the way to get you there, right? So you take yes. But there's a couple of problems with this. One is we don't know what is really true, but it's also not required. We just make assumptions and we just layer something on top of that. If it doesn't work, then we go deeper in the stack. But there's so much knowledge out there and you can't really verify. Nobody can. You need an expert. I mean, even the expert needs to take a couple of years and write some white papers and we still don't know. Like AI, we don't know why AI works, but it works. It's really strange. It's like magic. Um, but it shouldn't be because it's math, but it's kind of not math, right? So this math digital idea of that we know why it works, it's out of the window with AI already, and it will get even worse and creepy with AGI. And then yeah. the other problem is the the idea of wisdom is when you just define it, what is an, instead of an, you, you follow that odd instead of the is, wisdom is something we, we often copy from other people and religions, right? Religion copy gives us ideas about where we should go. But we don't know if it's true either, right? So we assume it and we see if it works for us. And I think this is this is the right behavior. We have to assume things and just go with it. We just we just act it out. We are like actors in our own life. And then we see if it works for us. And if it propels us and given what value system or like the like system we use to see if it actually is useful to us, we, we, we add a little more to it, become a little more radical, so to speak. Well, yeah, um, wisdom is is necessarily, it's the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. And I would say the least part of that is knowledge. I would say it's experience and it's good judgment. It's, uh, you know, the soundness of an action or a decision uh, regarding and the application of your experiences, the, the knowledge that you, you claim, and good judgment. It's all about making good decisions. And it is heavily experience-driven, but Thankfully, we can stand on the shoulders of giants. We can learn from the experiences of others. And I would say that science, science's true value to humanity is in its failures. It's where hypotheses did not turn out. Because since we don't really have a sense for truth, and we can't say this is true because we don't, we don't have a sense for that. We don't, I mean. Nobody has. Just, I mean, I don't think. No, have, nobody they, does. No person has. Thing. Yeah, maybe not, but uh, certainly we don't, as finite creatures, we don't have a sense for truth. And so the best thing that science can do for us is say, well, I don't know what truth is, but it's not that. <laughs> that didn't pass the test. And so it's like process, science is great as a process of elimination for hypotheses that we have. And so we really learn far more from the quote unquote failures of science. The failures of science are really its biggest successes in that way that it's the failures of the testing of a hypothesis that lead to the real value, the experience and the wisdom that help us make better judgments and better decisions. 
I think they are connected, but but I'm with you when you say we we are we have lacking the motivation to do something great. Um, because and I yeah. think this is a failure of religion, and that was at times at least in human um, history seemed to be much stronger, at least for certain individuals. I'm not saying for everyone, and they might have had sure. privilege, so to speak. But yeah. they came out and they changed the world, and I think we have too little of this. Fully with you. One I think we're headed is, back to that. I think we're headed back to that. The good news is, and we've some of the stuff we've said is it would be enough to make or maybe a little depressed. But the good news is, and you touched on this when you said, I think universal basic income is in some way is a, is a good idea. I think as we automate large sectors of the economy and we basically automate. Uh, service level jobs that can be done by robots that no longer need to be done by people. I think we will both create enough economic productivity to provide a, a, a minimum like safety net for all of humanity without being authoritarian and, and like robbing people at gunpoint with, with a taxation system. I think it's going to need, we're going to need to switch from an income tax to a consumption tax, like the fair tax to fund that appropriately. But um, and to do it the right way philosophically. But I think a UBI is part of that and automation is part of that. And as more of our society gets liberated from the drudgery of soul-crushing work, they will be free again, kind of like the aristocrats of old, to pursue these higher, um, these higher existentially fulfilling um, pursuits. We can all be science or the arts or whatever. I think that's right. That's yeah, I think cool. so. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's a really cool thing. At, it's very exciting. Look at the process of AI. We're not just going to change the GDP by like three or four percent. We're going to see a ten, maybe a hundred x in the next fifty years, and that's just yeah. unimaginably. We can go to the stars, and it's not it's not going to cost us anything, at least to the solar system. Maybe not the stars. Right. And people people well, cost get, becomes meaningless. Cost becomes meaningless whenever oh. resources are not scarce. Right. So if energy, I always ask this question, what do you think happens if energy would be free tomorrow? Like you have no, there's no, what could you do with this? And it's pretty amazing, right? So energy is, is for, for, for lots of things that we consume, energy is the main cost. Yeah. Well, I think the, the first thing would be uh, something like the uh, very speculative conspiracy theory kind of driven uh, quantum financial system. If you've read anything about that in sort of the fringes of economic wonkiness on the internet, um, there's a speculative uh, quantum financial system that could replace in theory our existing banking system and, and uh, you know, currency speculation and a lot of other um, moving the pieces around the board without really contributing anything to the production of, of goods and services in a meaningful way uh, paradigm that we have today. So a quantum financial system or something like that that would unify all of the global currency and, and distribute the value of that in an equitable way around the world I think would be achievable if, if we uh, either produced a Dyson structure where we had limitless in, uh, energy from our star, our host star, or if we had like fusion, fusion power um, that was clean, clean fusion, uh, cold fusion, yeah. something like that. I think that those kinds of innovations definitely could open up human productivity uh, to the point where it's, it's virtually limitless. But I also think we need to do things like asteroid mining. You know, uh, there's an yeah. asteroid in the Kuiper belt that has more gold in it than, than has ever been discovered on Earth, ever. Um, well, it's all about minerals and resources. And is about energy. Yeah. Once we have free energy, we can do whatever we want. And it's obviously not going to be 100% free, but it's going to be thousands, tens of thousands of times cheaper than today. What we achieved with transistors, yeah. we now have to do for energy. But if we have... And rare earth mineral. 
yeah, that's you know that would be my 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 other question. If the singularity is correct, in about twenty years, relatively soon, we have for a thousand dollars the power of a million human brains. So the same computing power doesn't mean it does the same thing, but we can. Our iPhone mm -hmm. is as smart in certain narrow fields, not AGI, in certain narrow fields as a million people. This power is insane. You know, we can just redirect billions of of intelligence. They're not they're not beings walking around, right? They're not little robots that are that are conscious, but those are problem solving machines and we can set them to anything we want. And it's basically free. So once we have that, that means free energy will be a matter of a couple of years. That's it. Well, I think in my lifetime, you're going to have a judge sentence a human, an AI judge sentence a human to jail. Like you're going to have yes. judges yeah. presiding in criminal cases. Like Without I could bias, see that happening no. in 20... Without bias, well, hopefully. unless it's unless the bias is programmed <laughs> into the to the software, right? Like, um, there there has been a lot of concern about, uh, and a lot of this comes from woke corners of the internet that are very uncomfortable with certain criminal uh, behavior statistics, but they they see that as like having a disproportionate impact on certain groups that that they that they want to uh, support their ideology, and so there's a lot of concern about. Um, whether or not there actually would be some kind of so-called systemic bias or inherent bias in the programming of, of a purely analytical machine that just uses statistics and, and that kind of analytical reasoning to um, pass judgment on people. Uh, but I think nevertheless, we're going to develop um, artificial intelligence-driven lawyers and judges and doctors, yep. I think doctors are going to, you know, you're going to have robots that are performing surgery on people that are more effective, uh, certainly have steadier hands than surgeons. I think technology is going to really change te technical fields. And in that, that includes white collar technical work um, yep. in, a, in a dramatic way such that the contributions to um, material goods and services are primarily going to come from uh, automatons, uh, artificial intelligence, robots, and that sort of thing more than people, and that where people will flourish and where human work will still flourish will be in qualitative ways through philosophy, through the arts, um, through the development and development of and contributions to culture. And that's, I think the writing is on the wall right now, and that's one of the reasons that the algorithms strain so hard to con control culture because we're at a pivotal moment in history where if culture goes in one direction it sets the tone for the next hundred years or 500 years no not in america I'm, I'm very confident americans will make the right call if anyone no i mean on globally planet, it's going to be the u.s and we're going to we're going to be fine and there's so much out there and in, in, in new new i don't know if it's 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 really valve but in in, in productivity at least we, we don't have to quarrel about these little things. That's, that's kind yeah. of my message. There's so much Agreed. out there. And all we need is some entrepreneurs, maybe in 10 years from now, maybe not right now, but in 10 years from now, the next generation. And this thing is going to be amazing. Um, well, that's why I do what I do. I want to support entrepreneurship. You know, like that's my whole shtick with executive yeah. LP and profit from legal is I want to foster entrepreneurship and encourage people to, to found businesses that are solving meaningful problems in the world. And then I want to help those businesses succeed. And I want to help them understand that they can, that the, the protecting those fledgling enterprises, those small to medium sized businesses, whether you have less than a million in revenue or, you know, 10 to $50 million in revenue, 
there is a path to using preventive legal support um, to make your business more profitable. It doesn't just have to be a cost center. So like even in my narrow little niche field, and I'm not going to like sit here and plug it, but I'm just saying that in my professional life day to day, day in and day out, what I do every day is help small businesses succeed and use legal services. But I'm, I'm fully uh, on board with and open to and, and kind of excited about the fact that technology should put me out of a job in the next 20 years. Like I really need to figure out something else to do and hopefully it'll be teaching no, philosophy. <laughs> not what's in your brain and what are the, the higher distilled thoughts of your brain, the decision making, so to speak, right? The judgment that you make will still be necessary, but what's important is that you're going to do anything that's repetitive, you're going to put it into an AI and the AI will pre-decide it for you. It will all look like minority reports, so to speak, for anyone. And we already do this. Like if you, if you do go on a new um, on a new route in a new way in our cars, we put the destination in and then we see the options and we follow it or we don't follow it. And I think this is my model for the future. We, we, we get all hmm. this pre-decided -de pre uh, models, but we don't have to go with the recommendation. We can always diverge from it, but we've got to have a better, a good reason for it. We can't just say, oh, no, no, I didn't go on this route. And your wife won't be so happy if it takes an hour longer. Right? So you've got to have I think that's really brilliant. It. I've never really thought about um, it working with AI, like following GPS, but that's a beautiful analogy. I think this is, this is the easiest outcome and eventually you just trust the GPS and then that's a danger of course as well, right? So if you trust it too much, you're like, if you're local, you know better ways to get there. So you don't have to trust AI. It's kind of for the idiots, like, they trust AI. Like Michael in the office where he drove his car into the lake and he said, you know, uh, robots are about trying to kill you in a lake. But it was really his own foolishness for, for uh, not listening to Dwight in the, in the passenger seat saying, no, don't turn left. You can't go here. The road runs out. And he's like, no, I'm following the GPS. And he drives his car into a lake. And there's an old wise saying that people say, the amount of problems always stays the same, irrespective of in what environment mm -hmm. you are. Because there is an amount of problems you can actually put on your daily agenda. Maybe it's a dozen. Maybe it's a few dozen. But if most of your little problems are taken care of, and that's what we speak about UBI, but if you talk about other more complicated issues that are already pre-solved, then your life is going to be not necessarily easier because I think we just find new problems we can put our minds to. So we can go to the stars. We can make everyone's life really excellent. We can live in 200 different places at once. We, you know, there's incredible, incredible ways we can make our lives better already right now you know just the four for for our work week and you know, out the four day work week well, maybe we well if you always have the same number of problems you're not really making your life better are you you're just making your life different you're you're trading one set of problems for another set of problems and in that way like standards of living will increase like we, we don't want to live like in the 16th century i, I at least i don't maybe, maybe i don't either people. like i prefer yeah. convenient yeah no i prefer i prefer solving higher order problems i think maslow's hierarchy of needs is really useful for this where you kind of see human needs in a and, you know, at the top is sort of like existential fulfillment, you know, getting meaning and value and purpose in your life. And at the bottom of the pyramid is sort of like subsistence based, you know, I need a safe place to sleep. I need food to eat. I need to stay warm. You know, I need to be protected from natural disasters and predators, you know, that kind of stuff. And I certainly prefer like some people would say, you know, all that existential angst is really hard for me to deal with. And I don't feel well equipped to do that. But I do feel well equipped to protect myself in the natural environment and scavenge for food. You know, they can, they like survival man, survivor man and all that stuff, you know, yeah. they, they like getting afraid. And so they're really comfortable with that bottom level of mass hierarchy of needs. Whereas 
I would not be. I'm I'm happier to contend with the existential angst and and to have all the lower levels of that pyramid, you know, resolved. And I I think wherever you happen to be on that spectrum of human experience, um, what we all need universally at every level of that is compassion, uh, charity, you know, uh, patience with other people, and understanding and the the willingness to engage in a dialogue and, and try to understand others and tolerate, tolerate them, you know, and not just uh, not force our views on them, not require them to use our pronouns or our language or our vocabulary, but to just say, look, you're a person at bottom. You're a person. I'm a person. I love you. What can I do for you? How can I help you? Yeah. They say, if you, if you seek true wisdom, what you have to do, you have to seek antagonism. You have to find the people who disagree with you. And while this is yeah. very uncomfortable and it's really tough and you know, you, you, everyone is going to be depressed after that initial debate, I think on both sides, you, you, you start the things crumble, right? The, these walls that you put in place mentally, they will crumble. And I try to do this every day. You know, San Francisco, isn't, I'm not very aligned with the political philosophy here. So it is a challenge. But I think it's the only way, you, you, the only way to really make yourself and come to better conclusions. And I, I like that about Jordan Peterson. When he does his, his lectures for years, he said, the most important part of why I'm doing these lectures is I look in, into people's eyes and see if they are with me, if I'm convinced them. Because there's a certain flow you get in if you convince someone. Mm -hmm. I mean, that person, you can see it. And once they get into this flow, this is something I would repeat into the next lecture. Everything else I would discard and come up with something new. And I think mm -hmm. this is the way why he got so successful on accident because this is 30 years of really hardcore data collection about what is persuading. And if, if people would go to the same amount of, of trouble, I think the world would be definitely a better place because that's, you know, it, it's kind of empathy. People perceive it as, as empathy when once they're positively persuaded, they think, well, you teach me something new, you taught me something new. And, you know, Paul Bloom wrote a wonderful book called Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. And he was talking about yeah. why empathy is actually the source of a lot of problems in, in the world, that it's uh, sort of this road to hell or is paved with good intentions problem. And that rational compassion is actually far more preferable and beneficial for society as a basis for things like public policy. But, you know, regardless of whether you choose to use, you know, empathy language uh, or rational compassion or whatever, I think you have to do what Jesus said. It all goes back to what Jesus said about love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You have to assume that there will be people who won't get it, who are who are definitely going to, to treat you badly, that that is a given and there's no way around it. You're never going to fix that. You're never going to be able to fix things like people just being bad humans. There are bad people. And but if you're right, they will have a bad conscience most of the time. Unless there we go back to the psychopath. Well, I think that's what makes them a bad person that. is that they don't have a yeah, that what makes them a bad person is that they don't feel that. They don't have that conscience and they don't they don't have the proper incentives to change and and there are always going to be those people, but it's not up to us to change them or even necessarily persuade them, although that's a good exercise to to do if you if you can. If there's a chance of persuading them, I say take that chance. Even if it's a slim chance, it's worth taking. But internally regardless of the outcome love others even your enemies you know and i think that that is the baseline for unity like that's the foundation for unity in your family in your personal relationships your friends in business um you know love someone and you care about them and you you acknowledge that they deserve to make a living no matter who they are you won't cancel them 
because you disagree with their politics. You won't fire them from their job because you don't like who they are ideologically. That's that's immoral. It's wrong. It's um, you know it's game theory. That's that's yeah. the big win I think. What Christianity had over Judaism, which was having a strong philosophy, but was a little bit erring on the side of exclusivity. And what what really comes out if you if you create people to be irrationally positive. You lose a lot of people because they can't defend themselves. They never fight. That was a big problem with Christianity. But what you win is that obviously someone needs to smile first in a conversation. If not, nobody really smiles, then you you both go out of this conversation and you hate it. But if some some one person always starts smiling first, now we can say those are idiots, right? They did irrational beings. <laughs> but actually, what it does, it, people recipro reciprocate, and then you create a better society just out of this nonsense. And I think this is the same as. It's free will. Free will is actually not being rational intentionally. And now we feel that's, that's the belief in free will. We think it's almost genetic, but I think the religions have really given us this, this idea in we, we have this, we are this unsurmountable um, being that is, that, is have, that is in the image of God, right? In the image of God, we are untouchable by someone else. We should not be coerced by default, right? If we go to prison, mm -hmm. we don't, we, it's still coercion. So it's, it, there's limits to this, and the limits are maybe not as correct as we think they are. But what, what really is important is that we have this illusion of free will. Even, even if someone can prove 100% mathematically it doesn't exist, and I think people are working on this, a lot of atheists, because they feel we've been drawn into this illusion. But I think it doesn't mm -hmm. matter, because what only really matters is, do we think we have free will and do we behave as we would have free will? And that's all there is to this part of game theory. That's what makes us a better being because we think we are a moral agent and we should make moral decisions. If we feel we are animals, it's just instinctive. We make worse decisions for society as a whole. And that's, I think, what atheists don't, don't get. Yeah, I think principle, principles drive all of that behavior too. And it's, it's the principles that um, shape who we are and what our behavior is. And I just think about St. Thomas More, uh, Sir Thomas More, uh, if you're, um, who was the chief uh, legal mind under King Henry VIII. And when Henry VIII separated the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church, uh, because the Pope would not grant him uh, an annulment from his Catholic wife, Catherine of Aragorn, or Aragon, excuse me, um, Aragorn's from Lord of the Rings. Aragon is the <laughs> place where Catherine was from. Um, but when he wouldn't grant uh, uh, an annulment so that Henry could divorce his wife, um, Henry kind of went woke. Henry, Henry got all woke about it. And he was like, you have to agree with me. We're going to have our own church. You have to agree that I'm the head of the church and that it's right that I divorce my wife. And I mean, that was wokeness. Henry VIII was one of the, the big woke guys of history, right? Okay. And so... I never heard about that. I mean, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's a great movie called A Man for All Seasons that's, a, that's about St. Thomas More's life. And Thomas More said, no, he was a faithful Catholic going to rubber stamp what King Henry uh, wanted. And even though they were friends, they were, they were close political allies. They were, they were friends. They were simpatico. Um, and on, from a dogmatic standpoint, they agreed about virtually everything. But, you know, for political and personal reasons, they had this big rift between them. And ultimately, King Henry VIII sentenced, sorry, spoiler alert for the movie, but King Henry VIII, this is sort of a historical fact, so you've had several hundred years to learn it. I, I don't feel bad about the spoiler. Um, <laughs> Henry sentenced St. Thomas More to death. And, and before the headsman's word came down on his neck, he said, I die the king's good servant but God's first. 
And I think yep. we all have to make these choices about which principles have priority and what matters the most to us. And those that, that's where I think divisions will always happen. But, you know, I think St. Thomas More died loving Henry VIII. I think he died his good servant, loving him and wishing that things were different, forgiving him and not even even at the cost of his life he wasn't going to compromise his principles but that also did not compel him to hate the person who yep. sentenced him to death and i think that's a great model for for all of us today when we're in the face of woke culture and we face cancellation for unpopular opinions or whatever the case may be and i, I think it may get worse before it gets better but the answer is always love love everyone even your enemies um, be compassionate, be kind, curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you. I mean, the, the answers are there for us, but it's very, very, it's very simple, but it's very difficult. Usually the simple things, and you've said over and over throughout all of, all of this conversation that some of these solutions are simple. They're not complex solutions, but some simple things are very, very, very difficult. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Well, I think what you what you say is very wise and uh, one thing that people i think they haven't analyzed enough is i feel like the religion is an error correction on adam smith's visible hand what it does to humans so in for the economy adam smith works well and i don't think we, there's much error correction to be done you can talk about modern monetary theory and some there's maybe some edge cases but generally mm -hmm. i feel it works magic like magic and nobody really knows how mm -hmm. it works it's this huge distributed supercomputer like the universe that someone must have built or maybe it's all just randomness but it seems to be extremely well built and designed and efficient and what what happens with the human humans is this this invisible hand that generally drives us where we think someone in a, in a relatively small case scenario is the right thing to do we want to optimize for self-interest right we want to we want to survive we want to we want to be nasty to other nasty people we want to we want to be, we, we do a lot of things given by our animal brain that we maybe, sh that feel good to us in that moment. Like this, we can talk about sins, but I think the, the real strength is that we have this error correction in religion. And people well, Judaism, when Judaism was the first big error correction in that way, right? The, the right. old um, admonition, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a limiting principle. It was to prevent the escalation of retribution. And it was saying, look, if someone, if someone costs you an eye, don't take more than an eye in retribution. That, you're right. Religion in that sense was literally a, a limiting principle and a correction. And I think that building it still on that is, but, and I tradition, think this is what, it still is. Yeah. Yeah, but people haven't, they're not aware of it enough because we, we kind of, we are these boxes of we just live out what religion told us. And now we kind of wake up and people feel feel deceived. And I think this is what we, the persuasion that we need to do. Yeah, Ryan Fournier, I think it was, said that um, we have been taught that it's impolite or uh, to talk about religion and politics. And I think that's um, I think that's what he said. You, we've been taught not to talk about religion and politics, but what we should have been taught. Or no, he said, being taught to avoid talking about politics and religion has led to a lack of understanding of politics and religion. What we should have been taught was how to have a polite conversation about a difficult topic. That's the quote. It just came to me. That's so a I wonderful way that, for the end of our conversation, because I think yeah. this is what we tried today. And maybe we totally. Yeah, no, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this discussion. And while it's not 100%, you know, 
profit from legal themed. And that's really what my podcast tends to be about. I think uh, it does have a lot of relevance to my audience because it's, it's human, right? It's a human conversation. And even though it's pretty big picture, it's not really, uh, you know, like boots on the ground, practical tips. It's still a really profitable conversation. And the second definition of profit, which just is generally like beneficial or useful for, for a particular purpose. And the purpose here would be, you know, how to live your life well and, and get more meaning and value and purpose out of everything that you do every day. I would get that. Noel, thanks for doing this. I think it was awesome. And I learned a lot of new things. Thanks, Torsten. Really I mean, that. hey, stay in touch, man. Let's let's uh, let's hang out virtually again and do another chat sometime. I, I really Absolutely. got a lot out of it. I would like that. Thanks, bud. No, Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.